Uh, today is the conclusion of this message, this series we've been doing called The Stuff We're Made Of. And I just want to tell you, it's been probably one of the most fun series that I've ever done in an attempt to help each of you connect with a spiritual legacy that John 15, as we abide in the vine of authentic historical Christianity, we are tied to people, sinners just like you and I, born in sin, but yet redeemed in Christ and have been able to accomplish very, very significant things. We've talked about a number of different people in this series. I shared with you in the one Courageous that I talked about, uh, Cyrus McCormick, who was an inventor pre-industrial revolution and had a calling of God upon his life. He, he was, felt like he was called of God to feed hungry people. And he began to pray and God gave him the design, the idea. It was one of our founders, forgive me, I, I, I don't recall, it was either George Washington or it was Benjamin Franklin that said necessity is the mother of invention. So when you're in a set of circumstances where you, you, have, you require something more than your current resources or your technology provides, then you begin to set yourself to think about how you can improve a process. And Cyrus McCormick did that, and he invented the McCormick Reaper that could reap what 12 men it took in one day to reap. One man could use his instrument and reap that many bushels of wheat. Talked about Harriet Beecher Stowe, who had courage to stand against social injustices and the evils of slavery in the American society. We cited a number of people. Pastor Haley shared about an African multimillionaire, um, Kenyan. His name, last name was Mully, who's literally adopted 18 plus 18,000 people, children, and provided for them. He's used his multiplied millions to bless people that otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity for an education or even have food or clothing or, or water. She talked to us about the Free Burma Rangers and how those who've gone into war-torn areas and shared the gospel of love and forgiveness and how God has healed hearts and changed lives, rescued people out of sex trafficking and human trafficking. Pastor Jeremy shared with us about Elias Pantoja, who came to the area here and affected his dad and his family and literally set the Soto family on a different course because the gospel impacted Felipe Soto's life and changed him and challenged him. And generations later, he, he raised three sons, all of them, pre, four sons, three of them which are preachers, pastors. Number of stories we've talked about, and we've deliberately done it in such a way so that we talked about business people and entrepreneurs. I talked to you about Dr. Lister, Henry Lister, for which Listerine was named after him. He, he was practicing medicine in a time and doing surgery when more than 90% of his patients were dying. The mortality rate was so high, and he was frustrated going, God, I know I'm called to help people, and I know, that I'm, 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 I, know that I know what I'm doing when I go in here and remove these growths from these people's bodies, and we sew them back up, and they die. What's going on? And they, they literally had a surgical field that had not been sterilized, and so he, he goes to God. He fasts, and he prays. Lister was his name, and he began to read the book of, of Leviticus where they quarantined the sick and they washed 
everything in order to not spread the infection. And so this was the day before germ theory was understood. People were actually making fun of the idea that there were microscopic organisms that were smaller than the human eye could see that were making people sick and infecting them and killing them. And so he started sterilizing the room that he operated in. He started actually boiling his tools in hot water and he developed some... um, Uh, antiseptics, which is really what Listerine was used for in the first place, uh, named after him. And immediately people made fun of him and other doctors made fun of him, but his mortality rates began to drop dramatically and where everybody else was losing 90% of their patients, only 20% of his were dying. And he prayed and God spoke to him from the book of Leviticus and in that book he revealed to him a pattern that he should follow. And so we've learned by examples that this is the stuff that we're made of. We've looked at the, the, the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11 which repetitively says, by faith Abraham, by faith Isaac, by faith Jacob, by faith Moses, by faith David. And it's a listing, by faith Rahab the harlot The prostitute, her life was redeemed and changed and she literally was listed in the genealogy of the Savior. If if God can take a hoe from Jericho and turn her life around, he can fix the problem you've got. Come on, somebody. And so this morning we open with our text. We have one verse that we've been opening with every Sunday in this series called The Stuff We're Made Of. And it, it came as an inspiration Because I was talking about how my grandfather had affected me. My grandfather, Jake Blake, known as the most righteous man in Mark Tree, Arkansas. And I know that's not saying a whole lot. I mean, it's like Mark Tree. You think, can any good thing come out of Mark Tree? You know, if you ask of Jesus, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I ask that about myself. Can any good thing come out of West Memphis? Because that's where I was born. The scripture says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And it says, let us run within what? Let us run the... I just flipped that thing around. I did it again. Give me a second. All right. There it is. Let us run... No, that's that stupid... There it is. Let us run with endurance the what? The race God has set before us. Now, I want to draw a significant, uh, some attention to this this morning that we've not been doing during this series. I, we've, we've spread everybody out with guests in the home, and I'm upstairs in the man cave. And so I had the TV on a little bit late, and I was watching some of the Tokyo Olympics. My wife always loved the Olympics. For two weeks, it's, don't have me make you a sandwich. Y'all fend for yourselves. I'm watching the Olympics. I mean, literally, it was, she was glued to the tube. She loves the Winter Olympics, Summer Olympics. And when you read the New Testament, the Bible is filled with all kinds of analogies and metaphors and allusions, A-L-L, allusions, that Paul gives to various sporting events that he likens the walk of faith or walking with God to. He says that I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. It's a weightlifting analogy. He says we don't box the air in vanity. And he says, like the athlete, we run to finish and win the prize, not disqualifying ourselves. Paul wrote to Timothy and he said every athlete must endure and abide by the rules. And so there are rules of the game. You have to stay in your lane. You can't fault 
or hinder an opponent next to you or you can be kicked out. There are, there's a way that we're supposed to run. We, we stay in our lane. We, 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 finish, we cross the finish line. And this whole scripture right here is speaking about, a matter of fact, all of, all of the beauty of this picture here is when you read it in the, in, the, in the Greek, it says that we are surrounded by a crowd. We are amphitheatered about. Literally, that's the Greek word. It's, it's the stadia, not stadium, but the Greek word is stadia. And it's the idea of what you look on TV, except the stands are empty right now because of COVID. And so all of these fans that are in the stands before uh, this particular group of people, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, is talking about everyone that was mentioned in the Hall of Fame of Faith. In hermeneutics, they taught us that it's, it's a bad preacher joke, but it, we, they always said, when you come to a therefore, see what it's there for. And so when we open chapter 12, verse 1, it says, therefore, go back to it if you would for me, please. Therefore, since we are surrounded by, amphitheatered about, by such a huge crowd of witnesses, the King James says, by a great cloud of witnesses. And obviously the cloud speaks of the heavenly realm, the realm of the spirit, the, 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 those who've gone before us historically have divided the church into some different groups. Those who have run their race and are now in heaven, in the grandstands of heaven, observing us run our race, we refer to as the church triumphant. They've already run and won. Those of us that are still alive in the race, living the life, running the race, are referred to as the church militant. And that sounds a little military for some folk. They don't like that. But we do have... Uh, a, a battle. We're not battling people. We're not battling flesh and blood, but we're battling ideas and we're battling mentalities, spiritual forces, heavenly places, wickedness in high places, Ephesians chapter 6 says. But when you look at this in context, it's literally talking about a very specific race, the race that is set before us. And in the Greek, it is a picture of a relay race. If you watch track and field in the next couple of weeks in Tokyo, you will see them run a race with four legs. Now, that's not on the people, but four legs as in four segments of the race. And what makes that relay race unique is that it's the passing of, a, of an object, a baton, between the one who has run the first leg, putting it at the hand, and you'll see them, the one who's running the second will actually start running before the other one catches up. So they're up to speed, and they reach back not even looking back many times, but just reach back until they feel the baton in their hand and their hand grips it and they continue to run with all of their might. A coach would put the fastest runner in the last leg in the hopes that if someone had lagged or God forbid if there had been a fumbling of the baton during the transfer that the quickest runner would be able to make up the time and possibly still win the race. The most critical thing about this relay race takes place when one is concluding his race and he or she is putting the baton into the one that's just starting theirs. And so this morning, the title of my message is called From Generation to Generation. Therefore, since we are encompassed about, these are all of the heroes of faith who've gone before us, and now they're in the grandstands of heaven. They finished their races, they're watching us run ours, and they are praying for us. They are encouraging us, they are cheering us on. Somebody say amen. My text for this morning is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, 
verses 46 through 51. This is called the Magnificat. This is Mary's praise when a young 15-year-old virgin finds out that she's going, she already has found out that she's pregnant and she is now giving praise to God because of what's growing inside of her and what God is going to do through her life. She says, it says, Mary responded, and here she begins to talk. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all what? All, say it, all generations will call me blessed. Okay, next verse. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. How many of you, every one of you here in the room, whom the Holy Spirit has overshadowed and did a new birth in your life, you have that same testimony. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. She continues, she says, he shows mercy from what? Finish it. Generation two, to all who what? To all who fear him. One more verse. It says, his mighty arm has done tremendous things. How many of you are thankful for God showing up and showing out in your life and doing some tremendous things? Everybody in the room, if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you've got a, at least a story or two. You probably have a lot of them. My one thing that I weave in and out of the messages that if you don't get anything else, I want you to get this, is generational transfer occurs when the revelation of one generation becomes the foundation of the next. Generational transfer occurs when how God showed up in my life and revealed himself to me gets told to my children and my children's children and their faith is spurred on to trust God for great things because they know they had a dad who trusted God in a difficult time. They know they had a granddad who cried out to God and God showed up and showed out in his life. Generational transfer occurs when the revelation of one generation becomes the foundation of the next. There are three things that I believe that are so important to be able to give my children that first of all is my revelation of who God is and who he has been in my life. We know God's greatness because it's been recorded every time God has shown up in the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And by the way, that's how God revealed himself throughout the whole Old Covenant. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and it was three generations. And what God did in Abraham became a foundation for what he was going to do in Isaac. And what God did in Abraham and Isaac became a foundation. It was first a revelation to them, and then it became a foundation in Jacob's life. That'll be important in a few moments. Some of you heard the story, and I'm not going to tell it because it would take 45 minutes, but how God gave me that B3 when I was 14 years old and the testimony of how it came about and trusting God and people I didn't even know began to give money. And it's a story. A matter of fact, my Bible on my desk at home has the check that my mom wrote and how God spoke a number to my heart when I was 14 years old and, and gave that to me. And we went to the bank, and it was crazy how all that stuff lined up. I'll, I tell it every four or five years, and hang around, I'll tell it again. But it's an amazing story of faith for a 14-year-old. You are not too young. Listen to me. Listen to me, moms and dads. D encourage your kids to pray and trust God. Matter of fact, sometimes God will show up. When they pray, because they have the faith of a child, God wants our faith to be childlike, not childish. There's a whole world between those two. Some folk just childish and just need to grow up. We need to become childlike. That is trusting unconditionally 
of God's love and his grace and his goodness for us. Three things I want to bring to you this morning. I've got a couple of stories. I have a couple of great scriptures. I'm not going to be long, but I believe you'll leave here challenged this morning. I believe this message will bless you. My first point is that we are to influence by example. Everybody say example. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the stories were written in the old Bible. 1 Corinthians 10 says they were all examples for us. King James says in samples. Greek word tupos, types which means they're prophetic pictures that will show us truth of what God did in the lives of those individuals, what God did in the nation of Israel. He will now do for us as spiritual Israel. We who find our new identity in Christ, no longer in Adam where all die, but now in Christ where those who are in Christ are all made alive. Somebody say amen. Example is so important because it provides a picture. It's a demonstration of what you want to see happen. When you, when you are building children, when you're raising children as parents, you set the tone and the culture of your home. I mean, if you don't, it's still going to, there will be a culture, it will be, it will be by default. You want to be intentional. I remember telling both of my children when they were younger, they would say, well, you know, they do so-and-so down at that house. And I said, well, this is not that house. We do things differently here. This is the Smith house. And this is what we do here. And parents don't be ashamed to, to do things differently than the neighbors do. And, and, but do things, not to be obtuse, but do things with intention. Do things with purpose. Do things that will show love and that will teach wisdom and that will help develop a heart of wisdom into your children. I do not believe it's the parents' responsibility to teach our children what to think. I think it's the importance that we have the call to teach our children how to think. And that's missing in this generation. You don't just want to raise a junior that parrots everything that you say. I learn more right now from listening to my two children talk. And it blows my mind because I'm talking to adults. I'm not talking down to a child or at a child. But I'm talking to two and forgive me, I'm just going to be a dad today. I'm going to be a proud dad, and that's okay. I am so thankful. I'm so grateful because both of them brilliant in their own right, in their own ways, creative. And, and, and God is so blessed, Drew, who stepped out in faith at the beginning of a pandemic to start his own company. And God has been blessing the socks off of him. And he calls and he says, Dad, what should I do? Pray, you know, Dad, please pray. I'm trying to get this account. And same thing with Abby, just, Dad, I need to make a decision. Help me, honey. I pray for both of you every day. I pray for my grandson on a daily basis. And I'm so thankful that it's my time in my life where I get to do that because I know my granddaddy, Jake Blake, prayed for me. And I'm still walking in the blessing of prayers because of him praying for me, laying in his bed at night and praying in the Holy Ghost. And hearing a prophetic word from the Lord and speaking it over my life and laying hands on me and calling me and Dewey in from playing cars in the dirt at 138 Pecan Street in Mark Tree and say, come on, boys, it's time to pray. And neither we'd go, oh, psh, I don't want to pray. And we'd come in and get quiet and hold hands and stand in a circle with the family and we would feel, we would sense. We, we, we encountered. Our lives were marked by the presence of the Holy Spirit as young little boys. And it, it changed our lives. It set us on a path. I'm trying to not snot all over this, this shirt. 
It set us on a path. None of us are perfect. None of us have always made the right decision, but we've known how to go back and make right what we didn't do right the first time. Generational transfer occurs when the revelation of one generation becomes the foundation of the next. I can't tell my children, don't do what you see me do, but do as I say. What are kids going to do? They're going to mimic what they see their parents do. Don't ever do such and such, whatever it is. And I don't want to mention anything because I don't want to think anybody, anybody to think that I'm like loaded for bear for you. Whatever it is, any kind of habit, don't ever do it the first time because then it's a struggle to quit. No, no I'm not going to mention it. Because they, and they're steady, whatever it is. Practicing that habit in front of their children. And the, the crazy thing is, is that leadership and culture in a home, how you lead your business, the, the response and the attitude of the people that are on your payroll as an entrepreneur. The students in your classroom, teachers, are going to respond the way you let them respond. They're going to be people of respect and honor if you teach them to do that. And if they don't, there should be some consequences. Culture and leadership and attitude is caught and not taught. It's something, what was it? Remember the Titans? Attitude reflects leadership. Remember that? You got a bad attitude. God said, well, attitude reflects leadership. That's our responsibility. It is my charge from the Holy Ghost to set the tone. And somebody says, well, you know, down at so-and-so church, and I'm going, hey, I love them. They're part of the body of Christ, but we're not that church. We don't do it the same way here. This is what it is. We love you. If this is not for you, praise God. Be blessed. But we know what we're doing here. We intentionally do a number of things differently because I don't believe God stutters. Does it mean we're any better than? I do not have that attitude. It just means we're different. It means we're called to reach a different segment of the population. We're called to reach a different age group, a different whatever. Influenced by example, it's more caught than taught. I cannot preach to you the gospel of measles and have the chicken pox because you get around me, I can preach the glory of measles all day long, but what are you going to catch? You're going to catch the chicken pox because it's the life I'm living in front of you. Do y'all get that? Are you hearing me? It's caught and not taught. Listen to what Paul says. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine. Gosh, that's so in the face of all this false humility by preachers that stand in their pulpit and say, don't follow me, follow Jesus. Don't, don't raise your hand. But how many of us have heard that mealy mouth, cold porridge kind of preaching? Don't follow me, follow Jesus. And that's not the Bible. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. If you don't have a leader you can follow, then you need to get you a new leader. <laughs> Philippians 4, 9, keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me. Everything, what does it say? Everything you what? Heard and saw me doing then the God of peace will be with you. Generational transfer occurs when the revelation of one generation becomes the foundation of the next. I have to pass it off. I have to build it in. I have to inculcate. I have to teach and I have to show and I have to tell my story. Point number two, we all have hand-me-down faith. 
If you've grown up in a family with a bunch of children, clothes get used numbers of times because usually families with a lot of children are pressed financially. And so you may be wearing three brothers above shirts that have come down the line or jeans, especially things that are good quality and don't wear out. And if you're one of the younger ones, you almost feel like you've never had anything that's original to you. But that's okay. There's some things that I don't think necessarily originality is what it's about. It's about abiding in the historical vine of Christianity. Psalm 78 verses 1 through 7 say it this way. Let's let's look at it. Oh, my people, listen to my instructions. Open your ears to what I am saying. For I will speak to you in a parable. I will teach you hidden lessons from our what? From our past. Go on. Stories we've heard and known. Stories... Our ancestors have what? There it is, handed down to us. We have a hand-me-down faith. Next verse. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the what? The next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and about his mighty wonders. Verse 5. For he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children. Stop right there. God chose Abraham not because he was so all fired up wonderful, but the scripture says he chose him because he knew that he would teach his children. He would pass it on. God knocked on the door of a 75-year-old man who is childless, a 65-year-old wife, Sarah, whose womb is barren, now dead. Romans chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 11, both give us the accounts of how two people trusted God, two people who were too old in life to have a baby, two people who were way past the years, who should should already be bouncing grandchildren on their their knees, and God said, I'm going to make you Abram, father of many nations, and he added a ha to Abram, and he became Abraham, and he added a Ah, to Sarah, and she became Sarai, and she became Sarah, and God took Abraham's ha, and he put it with Sarah's ah, and together they birthed ha ha. The son Isaac means laughter. Ha ha. Everybody say ha ha. God chose an Iraqi. Abraham was not a Jew. There were no Jews. God chose an Iraqi. Because he said, I believe you'll teach your children. And out of Abram became Abraham and the seed that would touch the world, a blessing to the nations. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God gave the Abrahamic covenant. Next verse. So, there it is again. Everybody say it. So the what? So the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and he says, This gift of the Holy Ghost, if you repent and and you are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And this gift is to you and to your children and your children's children and all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And afar off in in, in Acts chapter 2 is not a distance far off, it's a time far off. Peter was looking down prophetically through history and seeing families in the 21st century. He was seeing your life and your wife and your children, your sons and daughters, your grandchildren. He says, even the children not yet born, and they in turn will teach their own children. Everybody say, pass the baton. Verse 7, and I'm finished with this passage. So what? Everybody say it. Each generation should set its hope anew on God. Everybody gets a fresh start. 
but you don't start from scratch. You don't go back to ground zero. You don't have to begin at the beginning, but Drew gets to stand on my shoulders, and I stood on Grady and Mary's shoulders, and, 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 and Mary stood on Jake and Ella Blake's shoulders, and, and Grady stood on William and Creasy Mae Shepherd's shoulders, Creasy Mae Shepherd Smith on my dad's side. Each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting His glorious miracles and obeying His commands. The stuff that we're made of has to be transferred into the next generation. An awareness of our identity and who we are in Christ. That through Him we can do all things. That if we will just simply believe God with childlike faith, nothing shall be impossible. There's a family comparison here that I want you to see. One of my graduate degree is in global history and one of the things that I one of my favorite periods that I can just read about and love it is the colonial period and I know that colonization is a bad word and it's you know it's all the things the Indians lost their land and the Africans were enslaved and there was a lot of bad mistakes that were made and yet there were some great things that happened too and so I I don't want to cancel anybody I want to be part of that nonsense I don't think we should be just, you know, people of their time lived as a product of their time. And they said things and they, they made decisions. And God has, we've all been evolving. And don't be afraid of that word. Let's recapture a good English word. It just means change, okay? All right? We've been changing. And thank God we're changing, hopefully for the better. And one of, that, one of the heroes of that period is one of my heroes. That's Jonathan Edwards, who is one of the Trinity, one of the great three of the first Great Awakening. He was a pastor of a Congregationalist church. Literally, historians, Christian and non-Christian alike, across the whole political spectrum, believe that Jonathan Edwards was the first great in Amer- American mind, the first great intellectual that America produced. He became the president of the College of New Jersey, which became Princeton University. We're talking Ivy League. So he, he had a call for the gospel, but he also had a call that varies in a, what's the word I'm looking for, practically advanced people's lives by educating them, bringing them out of ignorance and poverty. He, along with John Wesley, who is the great Methodist reformer and founder of, the, of early Methodism, John Wesley wrote 250,000 miles on horseback, preaching up to five times a day, wrote, count, I don't know how many journals, some of them which I've had an opportunity to read, and just a phenomenal hero of the faith came preaching a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards, his brother Charles, who wrote thousands of hymns, John would preach, Charles would take those words by inspiration and write them into hymns that we've sung for 300 years now. And the other one is the, the great British evangelist, six foot eight George Whitfield, who had a basso buffundo voice, who in Benjamin Franklin's own diaries, this is a historically, historically acclaimed book, the, the diaries of, of Benjamin Franklin. He talked about when Whitfield came to Philadelphia, and of course Franklin is all about scientific experimenting and all of this, and so he literally walks from the the platform, the small little box that 
Whitfield gets into and preaches from without a microphone, without any kind of an amplification system, and he walks and he steps all the way out to the end of a crowd of 30,000 people and he measures it and he is literally blown away that this guy is projecting loud enough to preach and then hear the gospel without any kind of technology, no microphone, nothing. He just opens his mouth and he's just got these great flamboyant kind of uh, theatrical actions and he's singing some when he preaches and he's got the people of Philadelphia in his hands and he preaches the gospel. And Benjamin Franklin, who at best was a deist, not a professing Christian, and I don't want to offend you, that's just the truth, was a deist, and he said that after Whitfield came to town and the revival of the, the awakening touched Philadelphia, you could not walk down a single street in Philadelphia that you wouldn't hear psalm singing coming from the parlors through the windows of the people in the city because they had their hearts so turned to God. Now, don't tell me God can't bring revival and shake a nation. If he did it before, he can do it again. Come on, put your hands together and give the Lord praise. Read on a little bit further in, in Benjamin Franklin's diary, and he says that he was so moved when, Fran when Whitfield quit preaching that he literally emptied his purse, not just a few coppers, that would be like pennies today, but of crowns, gold crowns. So we're talking about a significant amount of money that he dumped into the offering. And Franklin was not at all religiously inclined in that and didn't want to have anything to do with it, but he liked George Whitfield, and they literally became friends. He was moved. He was moved by the presence of the Holy Spirit. He was moved by the character of the man who started an orphanage in Georgia, the state of Georgia. But I, I digress. Let me pull it back. It's so good. I love this stuff. You get me talking about history, man, I'll just I'll bore you for hours. I hope, I hope it's not boring. Are you getting anything out of this? Edward's life was studied. Puritan preacher in the 1700s, he was one of the most respected preachers in his day. He attended Yale at the age of 13, later went on to become the president of Princeton College. He married his wife Sarah in 1727. They were blessed with 11 children. Wow. Every night when Mr. Edwards was home, he would spend an hour conversing with his family, then praying a blessing over each child, laying hands on them and praying a blessing over them. Jonathan and his wife Sarah passed on a great godly legacy in their 11 children. Um, now, go ahead. I'm going to switch gears here. I want you to put up the next slide. This is a picture of a guy by the name of Max Jukes. And the reason that we even had this comparison sociologically in a study was because the New York penal system had found out that 42 of the inmates could all be traced back to one of their prisoners, Max Jukes, a common criminal, a thief. So 42 people that were in the New York penal system could all be traced back to one ancestor who was still a prisoner. Now, we're going to look at the difference, the godly influence by example, the ungodly influence by example, what is caught and not taught between the Jukes and the Edwards family. Go ahead and put up the family trees for me if you would. On Jonathan Edwards' side, 1,400 descendants. There are 13 college presidents, 65 college professors, 75 military officers, 80 public servants, 60 authors, 80 doctors, 30 judges, 100 pastors, 100 lawyers, three U.S. senators, and a vice president, and a partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> Max Jukes, common criminal. 310 died as paupers, 150 criminals, seven murderers, 100 plus drunks, 190 prostitutes. And that's an abbreviation of the mayhem that has descended 
from one man. Don't, do not think for a second that your life cannot change generations after you. Somebody said, you know what? My grandparents were alcoholics. My parents were alcoholics. It's just in the cards. I'm going to be alcoholic. I rebuke that thought in the name of Jesus. If you've come to Christ, you have a new identity, and you can be the breakthrough generation where you break the curse. You have to get the attitude that says, if it's going to be, it's up to me. And by faith, you're going to break that, that addictive pattern of behavior. You're going to lean into God. It may be a struggle. You may be on and off the wagon, but guess what? we got a people here in this house that love you, and we're going to surround you and pray for you and love you when you're high and love you when you're not. And we're going to pick you up when you're down, and we're going to celebrate when you're up. And guess what? We're going to see you get some victory. Because one generation can change everything. You can set into course a whole section of, of victory and wealth and blessing and prosperity in your life if you choose to make the right decisions. Generational transfer occurs when the revelation of one generation becomes the foundation of the next. Point number three, and I'm finished this morning. Are you getting anything out of this? Say amen. I've got a couple of sticks here that I have others, but these are the two that I've decided to bring. This one is sort of new, nothing really on it. I think I might have used it on one walk. I'm 60 years old. I was running 5Ks and 10Ks and half marathon in my 40s, and now I, I want to keep my knees. I don't want to have to replace them, so I'm riding the bicycle, and I do a little hiking once in a while. I like to go over to Shelby Farms and sometimes Shelby Forest and sometimes Village Creek and go hike a five-mile trail and pray. I'm excited. My dear friend of 30 years, Chip Bueller, will be here with us the last Sunday of August, and he's arranging for an October retreat for ministers, for brothers in the Lord, and we're going together in North Carolina on the, in the Appalachian Mountains for three days and pray and hike, and so I'll be sure and pack my walking stick with me. This one could be likened to a new life that's not, has a, not had a lot of history. This one, I'll be honest with you, I, and I picked this up because I thought that sometime in the future that I would start carving. And, uh, you know, when I can do that, I don't know, but it's just, it's just a, it's an idea. So nothing may ever come of it, but that's what I want to do. This one I bought at a junk shop, and it's kind of cool because you can see that somebody's taken the time to make a pretty nice decoration, a carving on it. And this, to some degree, illustrates what I want to share with you in my last scripture this morning. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21, my point is blessing by association. And it's important that you realize the people that you're around affect you. He who walks with the wise will be wise, what the proverb said. What is that old saying? If you hang out with four drunks, you'll be the fifth. You hang out with four millionaires, you'll be the fifth. You hang out with four prayer warriors, you'll be the fifth. So choose your compadres carefully because they're going to affect your life. What is it? The 1 Corinthians 15. Um, good character is corrupted by bad influence. 
So we, 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 we want to make sure that what's influencing us, what's influencing our children's lives are those that are going to lift them up and not pull them down. Somebody say amen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. It was by faith that Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. Hear it again. It was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. You remember the story. It, I mean, I could preach an hour on it. Obviously, I'm not going to. Joseph has, all the other brothers are half-brothers. they got a different mama, same daddy. And Joseph has a dream. He has a call of God on his life. And he dreams about being in a place of rulership. And he shares that dream with his half-brothers. And they hate it. They detest it. They're jealous of him. You know what? Jacob kind of doted on him too. He created the problem that happened. They, they threw him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. They dipped his multicolored coat in goat's blood, took it home and told his dad a lie that he'd been eaten by a wild animal. That's all they found when actually they had actually sold him into slavery. He ends up being put in prison by falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, accused him of rape when he didn't. He ends up in Pharaoh's prison for 13 years. 13 is the number of rebellion. How many of you know before God brings you to a place of leadership, he will deal with the rebellion in your own heart? Because I believe that leadership is sanctified rebellion. It's rebellion that has been redeemed and, and touched and changed and sanctified. Because a leader has to be a rebel in some regard. He sticks his head above the crowd and says, follow me. He refuses to swim the same direction all the other, other fish are swimming in. So Jacob comes to the time in his life where the son he thought was dead, all of a sudden he finds out that God has raised him up and his dream came true. He's sitting as the second in command of the greatest kingdom or empire on the known planet at the time, and that's the kingdom of Egypt. And Pharaoh is the most powerful government leader in the world. Pharaoh has a dream. Joseph interprets it. Joseph is immediately lifted up. He's got the keys to the storehouses. He gathers all the grain for seven years. The famine hits for seven years, and Joseph is dispersing the grain. His brothers come from the land where they were in Canaan, and they visit Egypt because they're starving. And you know the story of Joseph. Don't have the time to go back and tell it. But this is the moment when Jacob is passing. He is dying. And in his old age, Joseph brings his two sons that were born in Egypt to him. One named Manasseh, the other one named Ephraim. And it's so cool when you study names. Manasseh means forgetfulness. And Ephraim means fruitfulness. Literally in the Hebrew, it's double portion. Everybody wants Ephraim in your life. You want fruitfulness. You want your business to succeed. You want your children to be champions. You want your marriage to be great. You want your money to grow. You want all of these things. You want fruitfulness. But many times we can't birth fruitfulness until we birth forgetfulness. Joseph had to forget and forgive what his brothers did to him before he could become successful. That will preach the rest of the day right there. Everybody say forgetfulness. You have to make a choice to let the path, the past not define you. It marked you and it will refine you, but it does not define who you are for the rest of your life. It can be a stepping stone to your future. Now, what is this about Jacob leaning on his staff? Well, the Israelite people were shepherds. They were herders. They raised livestock. And so, unlike this one, it more than likely had a, had a crook on the end of it for reaching for 
a wayward sheep because thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Sometimes God has to yank you back and sometimes he has to give you a little bit of some correction. Come on, somebody say amen. And he will, and he'll bless you. He'll lead you beside still waters. Psalm 23 is the most amazing demonstration of having a shepherd in the valley that will shepherd and lead your soul. Jacob blesses forgetfulness and fruitfulness. He lays his hands on them and he does it while he worships leaning on his staff. And what I want you to see as I close this message this morning is that every one of us have a life like this staff, like this walking stick. And those shepherds of old would carry the same staff for their whole lives. And as important accomplishments, as significant triumphs, as failures that God redeemed would take place, the loss of a loved one. Genesis 28, Jacob meets God face to face and he calls it where he lays his head on a rock and makes it a pillow and God shows up and he sees the ladder stretched from earth to heaven and he calls that place Bethel, the God of the house of God, El Bethel. Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with an angel and it's actually the angel of the Lord. It's, it's a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ and it's, it's him wrestling with Jacob and he says no more will your name be called Jacob trickster, schemer, bad lawyer used car salesman but it's going to be Israel prince, prevailer with God so every one of these events there would be a symbol or he's got his new name Israel he's no longer Jacob but he's called Israel now prince with God, prevailer when he saw the ladder from heaven there was probably a ladder etched into the side of his staff. Every time God met him, it was how he journaled. It was how those shepherds kept up with their history. And so the scripture says, by faith, Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph as he worshiped while he was leaning on his staff. And what I'm trying to tell you is, parents, you need to lean into the history of when God has shown up in your life. Because you bless people out of your story, out of what God's done for you. We bless others by encouraging and telling them when they're down and out that we say, look, I just prayed and trusted God and just had a little bit of faith and God showed up and showed out in my life. Come on, somebody put your hands together and give the Lord praise. We bless from the foundation of our history when it becomes our realized destiny. God takes your past. Your past is covered in the blood of Jesus, and now you've got a new opportunity. Everybody in this room. Scripture says in Proverbs 13, 22, a good life gets passed on to the grandchildren. I love that. If you read the rest of that article there on multi-generational legacies, it talks about what sociology calls the fifth-generation rule. Decisions you make not only bless your children, or curse your children, depending on your decision, but it will have effects that are lasting up to four generations after them. So Jake Blake, Mary Smith, Michael is number three, Drew is number four, Henry's number five. He's got Jake's prayers carrying him. This is not, it's not about my family. This is about every, every family in the room. This is about encouraging somebody here today as I close this message and I pray for you. You are not so far gone. You are not so deep into an addictive pattern of behavior that you can't be the first generation that will break through. There are people in our church. Pastor Jeremy was the very first child in his family's life 
to go to college and get a degree. And guess what? When the youngest did it, then the other two older brothers followed suit and went back and got their college degree. When one breaks through, for years, for years, for years, people always said the the four-minute mile was impossible until Roger Bannister proved it wrong and he ran a mile in three minutes and so many seconds, under four minutes, and he broke through. And now it's an expectation. Everybody who trains on an Olympic level is going to break a four-minute mile. Because when a breaker breaks through, you set the path for others to come along and break through. Grandparents, you can pray blessings on your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, passing it the baton from one generation to the next. You can see legacy. You can see blessing and prosperity and and strength and faith and the goodness of God being revealed. Come on. Surely goodness and mercy are going to chase you down all the days of your life. They'll follow you. You have mercy and goodness following you around everywhere you go. Come on. Is there anybody left in the room? Come on, somebody. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. I love it. I love it. I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it, I love it. Anybody in the room who needs prayer, anything you face right now, no difficult, no circumstances, so difficult that God can't fix it. If you've never crossed the line of faith, it is a free gift to receive God's goodness and His salvation into your life. You don't earn it, you don't deserve it. It's His unmerited favor. He pours it out upon you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He made a way when we certainly weren't asking for a way to be made. Heads bowed, eyes closed, nobody looking around. Whatever you need, if you would just like to say, Pastor, please pray for me. Slip your hand up. I want to pray for you this morning. Anybody? Yes, there's one right back there. I see that one over on this side. Yes. Looking around, one in the far back. Yes. Thank you. Pray with me right now. Father, thank you for this room. Thank you for these people. Lord, thank you, Lord, for it everybody breathing and alive that's a human that's struggling today. Let hope come alive in their hearts. Thank you, Jesus, for the opportunity to be alive in 2021. Thank you for your goodness that you've poured out upon us. I pray, Lord, for these who've lifted their hands that you would move in their lives and answer their prayer and show up, oh God, and show out. Lord, let them pick up a staff. Maybe it's a a journal and a, and a pen and they write about what you do not so much a carving into a piece of wood and a walking stick but Lord that they would begin to just say look at the wonderful things God is doing in my life thank you for reminding us of that help us teach our children and our children's children it's in the name of Jesus that I pray and all of God's people said Put your hands together. And Amen. Give the Lord Thank you, Pastor, for that.